1: And welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast that's all about digging into big questions and tricky topics for our honest conversation. This week we're going to be looking at anxiety, which I actually can't work out why I've never covered this before because it's a subject I'm very passionate about, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to be talking to Dr. Ellen Bora. She has got some ridiculous qualifications. She has a BA from Yale University graduated from columbia university medical school is a board certified psychiatrist acupuncturist and yoga teacher she specializes in depression anxiety insomnia women's mental health adult adhd bipolar and digestive issues she lives in new york city with her partner and daughter and i was just saying off mic her recent book or is it your first ever book is, is first your- book first book the anatomy of anxiety hopes to offer understanding of overcoming the body's fear response and yeah I was just saying off mic it is a book that for me pieces together so many things that I think I vaguely understood in myself but hadn't managed to knit them together and for anyone that has suffered with anxiety which unfortunately I think is swathes us these days I really recommend it Um, And I've also been laughing to myself because I've been feeling vaguely anxious because we tried to record this podcast a little while ago, didn't we? And then the um, time difference got the best of us. And as a control freak, to have to try and do things again and not lose it is a bit of a challenge. But that's probably quite apt. Um, Definitely don't feel bad about that. And yeah, I mean, here we are. The
0: anxiety certainly centers around themes of control and uncertainty and fear. And so it's no wonder But let's all just take a deep breath and feel reassured we're cool
1: yeah we're cool (laughs) and the the thing is
0: um
1: exactly that's why i always think things happen when they're meant to happen and Mm. we are we're all juggling so much and when there is a little thing like um a time difference plus technology yeah you just have to hold that gently in your hand and think well sometimes these things don't quite work out but that's okay Yes, exactly. Time differences
0: plus eclipses—it's all too much.
1: (laughs) My word, I know. (laughs) Depending on how—well, actually, these are my my first three questions. Always, how are you really? What star sign are you? And what's your favorite crisp or potato chip? (laughs) (laughs) Um, How am I really? Um, It's always a mixture. I
0: live in ambivalence always, (laughs) but I am generally pretty good and feeling fairly fulfilled and catching moments of spaciousness in my life right now. But the world around me is deeply disconcerting. And um, and I'm feeling, and this is just to get into the brutal truth of it, my, my daughter, she's six, she's feeling like she's not getting her cup entirely filled with enough mama time. And so that's really giving me a, a bit of an unsettled feeling. And I don't exactly know where I can build
1: the time to add in more. So figuring that out, that's how I am. Mm. I'm, I'm going to come back to you on that. I want to know your star sign and your favorite crisp or potato chip. Star sign. So my son is in Aries,
0: and I apologize to all who have to interact with me for that. I think it's this not the kindest sign. It's ruthless, impatient, insensitive. It all tracks. <laughs>
1: Uh, my my moon is in Aries, but my um sun is in Pi- my son is in Pisces, and it's a terrible combination. Oh, wow, because <laughs> my internal di- that dialogue is quite driven, but my uh, but I'm an, very very emotional, and I feel like I'm in constant conflict with myself on that. That is a tough combination, mm. but I feel like it's exactly why you're here doing what you're
0: doing. <laughs> Just yeah, living it out loud so that we can all feel less alone and grow from it. Well, yeah, I, that's what I tried to tell myself, but mm-hmm. it's
1: yeah, it's a, a force. And your favorite crisp? I have such a disappointing
0: answer for this. I, I am a sweets person more so.
1: Mm-hmm. So, like,
0: there is just no—I guess here we would say chip—that I reach for. Like, I don't stock it. I don't keep it in my kitchen. I don't come into the kitchen hungry and think, "Ooh, I want to eat chips." It's not. It's never been who I am. I I go foraging for chocolate. So I love this particular chocolate cookie called Mom's Munchies. (laughs) And every time my daughter or my husband tries to have a bite of mine, I'm like, "Ah, ah, what does it say on the wrapper? It's Mom's. (laughs) And so um, that's that's my go-to snack. But chips, I don't know. I mean, I'll try anything, but none of them inspire passion or loyalty for me.
1: See, I'm wondering whether there's a bit of a cultural difference there, because if I ask that to any British person, it's like, it's a very, very passionate answer like it's quite defining what your choice of crisp would be don't, don't let me represent all of the United States <laughs> because I'm, pretty
0: sure I'm surrounded by people who would passionately say cool ranch Doritos or Lay's potato chips or ruffles or something else not you. Um, I see the passion and I feel left out you know I've, <laughs> I've always felt is there something deeply wrong with me
1: well, well, done for being honest <laughs> in this space <laughs> a of question. I'm very interested in your early answer, though, that, you know, because I was like, oh, wow, finding spaciousness felt like such a, a brilliant piece of language and definitely something that is a challenge, isn't it? But I know that exact wrangle that when I feel like I can just about find some more more time for myself in any capacity i automatically swing to that concern that therefore my children aren't getting what they want and it's the eternal struggle mhm i don't have the answer to this one mm-hmm. <laughs> i think that none of us do- um
0: i mean i think it's you know when we talk about can you have it all like and and i think the conversation has now appropriately moved to not all at once and i think it's so important to recognize that you know it's that the way, the only way this can work is that in any given moment, if you're succeeding in one corner of your life, you are by definition failing in another corner, and to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. So there are times when I'm feeling like I'm actually showing up and making a great contribution professionally and actually a- answering people's emails relatively on time. And those are the times when my daughter is not getting her cup filled. And then there are times when I'm really right there with her, everything else is silenced. And then um, you know, the email stack up of, hey, just circling back, have not heard from you yet? And so to be okay with all of those little pockets of failure that have to exist in order for us to pour ourselves into something else. And, you know, our conditioning doesn't tell us it's okay to be failing in any areas.
1: No, it's true. And it, you just, I think you just have to try and get more and more comfortable with it. And what I'm finding, my eldest son is, is nine. And what I'm appreciating is that he is being, now of an age where i can talk him through that a bit and talk him through you know i've got a really important thing at work at the moment it's for a time i'll be around a bit more in you know x amount of time and that feels nice and i think actually at six they can begin to talk about it but not in quite with the emotional maturity that he is so that helps
0: i mean the fact that my daughter can talk about it right now means we're really talking about it how much she's feeling like she's not getting Mm -hmm. enough again so that's it's it's top of my mind and i'm certainly going to try to structure the next several weeks around how can i be more present Mm.
1: i do wonder though because it's interesting i've got one of my children is is, is seven but a lot of my friends with kids of a similar age we've also been been in a very skewed thing where they had so much access to us for a couple of years during the pandemic that that this going back to this time feels like we're really absent when we're at we're not we're just closer to what is, is a more conventional balance i suppose yeah i think that's exactly right but it, it it opens up bigger
0: questions of well what is like you know they got used to that more access to their parents <laughs> and now we're all kind of going back to normal as it were but mm. it's you know i wonder like what is right? <laughs> How yeah, much time should we be spending? Should weekends only be two days? <laughs> I
1: wonder. Yeah, it's really difficult. And as you say, that if we had a nifty answer, then it would be great for for everyone. But there isn't. You just have to keep wiggling through it, I guess. Yeah. So to talk about anxiety, what, what do we mean when we say anxiety? It feels quite like a broad term these days. Oh,
0: this is the only question I have a worst answer than the, than the crisp one. I
1: think that you would think I have
0: an answer at this point. It shows up so differently in all of us. Some people, it's generalized anxiety disorder where you're always chronically around the clock, kind of in a state of tension and worry and fear. It's really hard to relax. You have ruminative thoughts and racing thoughts. And that's, um, that's a very common presentation of anxiety but for somebody else, they might have a relatively calm baseline, but it's interrupted by the occasional panic attack or someone else might have social anxiety or OCD. So it shows up so differently in all of us. And there's also a lot of debate these days on sort of dividing what's clinical anxiety versus quote unquote, just stress. And mm-hmm. I, I actually don't appreciate that conversation very much. I think it's not that useful. Um, I, I tend to think all suffering is very valid and deserves, you know efforts to relieve that suffering. And so this gatekeeping we do around mental health diagnoses, I understand why it's there. You know we need to standardize diagnoses for research. Mm-hmm. We need to um, put up some barriers before we do invasive interventions like medication. Mm-hmm. But since I take a holistic approach and I'm using things like diet and lifestyle that don't have side effects, they have side benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there needs to be any gatekeeping. Keep and if someone is subjectively connecting with this word anxiety, I think, well, come on over. You belong in this conversation.
1: Let's try to troubleshoot, think about
0: ways for you to feel better.
1: Yeah, because yeah, no, th- there is no downside to, to working on all the bits that you talk about. Everyone could benefit. You know, you're only improving your baseline. Do you? It, did your interest in it come about from your own personal experience?
0: Absolutely, I mean, it's a combination. For me, anxiety is not actually my Achilles heel. Um, I, I go to sort of different dark places when I'm not well, but, um, but as a psychiatrist in practice now for 10 years since graduating from my training, it, you know, I got the memo, everybody coming into my office was struggling to some extent with anxiety. And it felt like such a vast problem. and All the DMs I would get, people reaching out through the contact form on my website, anxiety was coming up over and over and over again. And it felt like I had to speak to this in in a way that scales and reaches a broader audience than just my patients, because I actually really enjoy treating anxiety. And I get kind of excited at the opportunity to help someone with their anxiety, because I think it's an enormous problem with a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's a lot that we can do to reduce suffering upfront, relatively readily, and not here to say we solve all of the anxiety of the world. A lot of that is actually not even pathologic. It's it's there as a way that our bodies are communicating things are really not okay. But a lot of these aspects of anxiety are pretty treatable.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an in, important message. I want to speak a bit about my own personal experience of it for, for some context. I really remember Mm -hmm. having panic attacks from such a young age I was trying to in prep for this put put an age on it but definitely early teens which would probably add up because it's probably around a very hormonal time in your life and then in my late 20s got to a point of a fairly crippling anxiety where it was affecting my commute to work and then it was actually starting to affect before my commute to work and then bit by bit you're, you're editing your life to te- do more and more complex journeys that in my case avoided getting on the tube and suddenly then you're starting having a panic attacks at home and and that for me was the okay this is that's a problem with a, a a disorder like this it, it can spiral can't it? it it starts as a i'm feeling a bit uncomfortable on this journey and before you know it you put in these control systems and try and like help it perhaps in the wrong ways and suddenly it's taken over more of your life and then went to the doctors and, and never went on medication had um cbt which was amazing and even way all the way along through that process i thought this isn't working this isn't working this isn't working and um, lo and behold <coughs> it, it worked but what's interesting for me is then you know i'm now in my early 40s reflecting back. I can see that so much of my anxiety was actually linked to my lifestyle, by, and in particular around drinking and just generally not taking care of myself. But at no point in the conversation with anybody did those things get tied together. And I find that, yeah, it's not a criticism of the system, but it just feels like such a, a missed opportunity. Yes,
0: Yeah, I mean, I have so much to say on everything you just brought up. One (laughs) is my own similar experience, which the psychiatrist I worked with, you know, I went to weekly therapy through med school. I love him. I thought he was incredible and so wise and so supportive. And he was really, you know, someone who made me feel witnessed and and understood. But man, because of our training, because of the system we, we, we work in, he never caught the things that were actually contributing to my depression (laughs) like they were now i look back and it was obvious i would catch it in a first visit with a patient but that's partly the altruistic drive of you know everything that was missed for me i'm really trying to do for my patients And, and and in the process probably missing other things that he was really good at um so the and cbt is wonderful and all my patients when i refer them out for cbt they have that same experience of like, I don't know if this is working. I don't know if this is working. And then you check in six weeks later, and you're like, but you've stopped having panic attacks. <laughs> so what do we define as working? Um, but I, I think that um, and 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 the way that you mentioned making your life smaller around panic is so common and so troubling. Mm. You know that people with anxiety end up saying no to things and taking longer, more intricate commutes, and then their life just gets smaller and less expansive. And in a weird way, it's the avoiding, those things that make us anxious, that make them proliferate in our imagination. Mm. It's like it makes it worse. And that's where kind of behavioral therapy and particularly a subset called exposure response prevention or exposure therapy um, is very good at making us do it anyway mm. and kind of go straight to the heart of darkness and then realize that that's actually what chips away at the anxiety. It's hard to do. Um, there's a man named Barry McDonough, I think, who wrote a book called Dare, um, where he talks about how it's in the resistance to what makes us anxious that we really make it worse. And it's by running toward it um, that it, it becomes less of a problem in our lives. And it's, it's completely counterintuitive, but it is helpful.
1: Yeah, because it's exactly that. It, it it was that juxtaposition that got me because I knew in myself that I was quite brave and quite up for, you know, i travelled and I'd done big presentations and then suddenly my commute was what was flooring me. And, yeah, you, you shrink yourself and I was like, I know I'm brave but I can't rationalise this. And, yeah, you're right, exactly that. If you can go towards it. You can conquer it, and for me, what really helped is actually beginning to understand how a panic attack worked. That you know, this is your adrenaline coursing through your body. Lean into it, stop fighting it, and then almost by the time we've done that, it's beginning to dissipate through you. you. But it's the the fear of getting the panic attack, as you say, is is crippling.
0: Which you know, I want to validate, like. Panic is exquisitely uncomfortable, Mm. and so it's understandable that people who suffer from panic attacks start to organize their life around avoiding it. Um, It's it's just that it turns out to be a strategy that's unhelpful rather than helpful. Um, But what you brought up about the relationship to alcohol, that sort of pertains to the central thesis of my approach to anxiety, which at this point is still different from how other people are practicing. It's certainly different from how I was trained, but it's to take a more holistic view of anxiety. And to not just think about mental health from the neck up as our genetic chemical imbalances, which that's how we've all come of age, to think mm-hmm. about mental health. We're, we're, we're indoctrinated to think our mental health is the result of our genes. And it's somewhat of a destiny. It's a fixed trait. And it's our, mm-hmm. it's our brain chemistry, which I'm not here to dispute that brain chemistry matters, but I think it is sometimes a downstream effect of some state of imbalance elsewhere in our lives. Mm-hmm. And the two categories of where we get out of balance and how it impacts our mental health that I don't think we're talking about enough yet. One is our physical body. All the ways that our physical body gets out of balance impacts the brain, which is a physical organ in our body. It's a piece of flesh like anything else. Mm -hmm. And when our body's out of balance, our brain is out of balance and that manifests as mental, mental health issues. But then we also as humans have these fundamental psycho-spiritual needs, like our need for community and for a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives, arguably even connection to nature and for some of us, a connection to spirituality. And that's where, um, you know, I wasn't taught about that. We're squeamish about these things in medical training, but I've realized I've been doing my patients a disservice to not at least broach those questions and, and say, you know, where are you finding meaning and purpose in your life? and that is really central to our mental well-being. We can get our brain chemistry right, we can get our whole physical body into balance, but if we are disconnected from all of these core psycho-spiritual needs, I don't think we feel fully well.
1: I think you're so right. I mean, ultimately, for me, through any bad patch of mental health, it's finding any kind of purpose has been the thing that shifts the balance, whether that's yeah, I mean, on the smallest scale, right through to the biggest scale, isn't it? And it, that it really does come from your sense of self, which no medicine or therapy, can it, it can help you access that. But that is the, the crux of it, isn't it? Exactly. Well, yeah. Well, another thing that was really fascinating to me, and it, it ties back into this idea of anxiety being a lot landed in the body, is both the um, link to blood sugar and the, the link to hormones could you say more about that yeah
0: so so this is under that that part of the triangle that is the way physical health impacts our mental health and in my book the way i describe it it's really influenced by um, this brilliant author named julia ross who wrote a book called the mood cure and she defined that we have false moods and real moods a real mood something happened and we're in our mood as a result there's been a loss we're grieving Mm -hmm. But a false mood are those times when, seemingly out of nowhere, we're suddenly anxious or angry or sad, irritable, and our brain is always all too happy to swoop in with an explanation It tells us a story, oh, I'm anxious because of that email or because of this interpersonal situation that feels unsettled. And those problems are always valid. But if we could really omnisciently look under the hood of the body what we would see is that in that moment, we're in some state of physical imbalance that trips our body into a stress response that creates that mood state. And this is actually a very hopeful and empowering view of mental health because Mm -hmm. we can't do a lot about our genes. We can do a lot about this. So blood sugar, alcohol, hangovers, hormonal imbalances, inflammation, anything off with our digestive tract, micronutrient deficiencies, Chronic sleep deprivation, all of these things are very central determinants of our mental health, and most of them, there's a lot we can do. There's usually a pretty straightforward path to supporting them. Blood sugar is often where I like to start with my patients with anxiety because it's such a quick win. Many of us are on a blood sugar roller coaster. Our modern diets are built on a foundation of refined carbohydrates and coffee drinks that are secretly milkshakes and rosé all day. So our blood sugar is swinging up and then it's crashing. And when it crashes, our body has a stress response. That's the design. We release cortisol and adrenaline that cues the liver to break down its storage of starch so we can restore our blood sugar to normal levels. We can live to see another day. It's a good system, mm. but it has as a side effect that we're in this all-out stress response in our bodies. And that can feel synonymous with anxiety or panic or feeling overwhelmed or waking up throughout the middle of the night. And so I like to encourage my patients to stabilize their blood sugar to avoid a lot of unnecessary stress responses and unnecessary anxiety. And There's two approaches. You could do the definitive solution where you are eating a blood sugar stabilizing diet, real foods. You eat like your great, 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 great grandmother ate, more healthy fats, less refined carbohydrates and sugar. Some people are like, okay, I'm ready for that. Other people, it makes your eyes want to roll to the back of your head and it feels daunting. And so then there's a hack that's supportive and you can just take something like a spoonful of almond butter or coconut oil in anticipation of your typical blood sugar crashes and that gives you this safety net of stable blood sugar that can then blunt any superimposed crash. And so if you know that you go to the snack room at three to forage for chips or crisps or cookies, um, maybe you take a spoonful at one thirty or two in the afternoon. And if you know that you pick a fight with your partner at 5 p.m. in the afternoon, you know, then maybe you take a spoonful at 3.30 or four.
1: Um, I'm, I'm nodding along because actually <clears throat> I had one of those weird, um, very that when some massive synchronicity in my life. So when I was reading your book, I was also wearing a, a blood sugar monitor. I wore mm-hmm. a, 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 through the work that I do at my local gym, I wore a glucose monitor for a month. And it was one of the biggest reality checks I've ever had. I have to say, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of how my body functioned and being able to reckon. I, I knew that I understood that I had blood sugar crashes, but I hadn't understood that that was actually happening all day, every day as a norm it was it was a real shock actually it made me question entirely the way that I've been eating and and the constant stress I was putting myself on and what also surprised me is that I was when I drank coffee when I was tired the the stress response or the the blood sugar response was huge so it's the idea that you're piling things on I'm already tired I'm adding some caffeine probably then I'm going to crash so I'm going to have a brownie, and you're just pushing your body further and further into a kind of constant state of stress. Even though for me, unfortunately, that had become something that felt quite normal. You know, if you'd have asked me, what Was my body in that response before I'd had this monitor? and I really wouldn't have known that. And I was just thought, Wow, how many people. And then I'm suddenly looking at everyone's diet, seeing what people are doing, thinking, Wow, you have no idea what's going on for your body, even when you know yeah it was was shocking and surprising it's amazing
0: right I mean it's somewhat universal everyone who walks into my practice shares these two traits one is that they you know are waking up tired sleep deprived because Mm. of life because of doom scrolling late at night whatever the cause piling on a strong cold brew coffee and then craving sweets and then you know on and on and then alcohol at night and waking up hungover and And they also have anxiety Mm -hmm. and I see that human suffering and I want to relieve it. And my training Mm -hmm. says, well, let's talk about it for seven years. Let's give them a medication. Let's refer them for CBT. And all of that has its place. But what I started to realize was well, let's get their blood sugar stable. Let's Mm -hmm. get them in bed a little bit earlier and set up for better quality sleep. Um, Let's make more conscious, self-loving choices around alcohol. Maybe it's not every night, maybe it's certain nights. Um, And then, you know, and diet is something I think we could talk about, but that's its own mm-hmm. whole huge fraught issue. But to sort of arrive at a place where we're nourishing ourselves from a place of self love, not from a place of obsessiveness or fearing food or mm-hmm. feeling fragile. Um, but there are ways to approach nourishment, and make it realistic and, and make it, you know, we stay whole. We're not mm. then losing our minds around it.
1: Oh, that, yeah but it's such interesting language so I've I've totally changed my diet I was what I would have called a meat avoider mm. but, and, and now I've, I'm have actively eating quite much higher levels of protein to do with the way I train but because I was interested to try and tweak to try and stabilize my blood sugar and and it has and, and a couple of times when I've had kind of quite high stress weeks recently I have this much more grounded sense, and it's not just down to the meat. I'm trying to be conscious of not having too much sugar, checking in my with my caffeine, but by by what I think is stabilizing my blood sugar, I just feel, yeah, more grounded, and I can still feel the stress response, but it's on on such a smaller scale. And again, it's this thing of these habits have have. We've accumulated over a lifetime. I, I really don't remember a time when my my diet did look like this. So I feel like the anxious yeah. version of me was just who I thought I was because my body hadn't probably hadn't had stable blood sugar for decades.
0: Yeah, exactly. And
1: meat is its own
0: interesting topic yeah. as it pertains to anxiety. It's this isn't an easy conversation. I was a vegetarian for many years. I was a vegan for a period of time. Um, What I find is that especially people who are health conscious and just conscious in general, people trying to make thoughtful choices Mm -hmm. about how they feed themselves, often we find ourselves not eating meat. And then I've noticed this, I certainly noticed in my own body, when I was a vegetarian, I, I didn't feel so well. And I accidentally ate meat one time and like I ordered a grape leaf at a Greek restaurant. And in my experience, that means some rice wrapped in a grape leaf. But at this particular restaurant in Tempe, Arizona, where I was traveling <laughs> for acupuncture training, it meant a ground beef and rice wrapped in a grape leaf. And I took one bite and I, I was like, hmm, this tastes too good. And I felt like Super Mario when he gets the mushroom. I was like, boom, 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 boom. And I, I instantly felt like oh, my duck. body said a very strong yes And, and I went back to eating meat at that point, and it actually corrected quite a bit of physiologic imbalance for me. And I've seen that with many of my patients. So it opens up a difficult conversation Mm -hmm. where if you are avoiding eating meat for ethical reasons, environmental reasons, like continue, I'm not here to encourage anyone Mm -hmm. to compromise their ethics. But if you're doing it because you think it's the healthier choice, Mm -hmm. I encourage people to just have a slightly less dogmatic approach to it we don't need the label and the absolutism about it we can um eat some meat when our body's telling us that's what we need and maybe eat less meat at other times when we don't feel like we need it but we can just kind of have a little bit more ability to moment to moment listen to what our body needs
1: Mm, that's exactly it i think the older i get the more i learn that these finite rules (laughs) with myself don't don't really work. Interesting. Like I was at a, a barbecue the other day, and one of my best friends is a long-standing vegetarian. And then there was some beautiful beef that had been, you know, raised rec- locally and been cooked on the barbecue. and She's like, "Oh, can I have a bite of that?" I was like, "Sure, you can." But there's something very there's something that's come up for her. Then her body's craving it. And yeah, of course, I'm not saying everyone should go and eat meat. And I'm trying to eat meat that has been yeah farmed in in the in the best possible way but i i am really shocked by the impact it's had on and everything and and what i'm beginning to understand in the same way that you can go down the spiral you can go back up the spiral you know i'm sleeping better i'm, I'm craving these things less my energy levels better and then your your mind begins to be, feel a bit more confident in itself for want of a better piece of language mm. and and suddenly yeah, your base level is better i suppose
0: it's such a good point there is there is a vicious cycle and a virtuous cycle with these mm-hmm. things and yeah and i think that it can sometimes feel overwhelming to make all of these changes and i i certainly mentioned this in my book because i realize I can have that impact on people. I used to get this feedback earlier in my practice was like, you just gave me 50 things to do. So I'm <laughs> going to do none of them. <laughs> can you tell me three things to do? Mm-hmm. But in a book where it's like, well, I have your attention for these 250 pages. How do I you know, play the long game? But basically um, I think of these things like a buffet. It's like, you don't have to do all of this. And certainly not all at once that won't be sustainable or realistic but what do you feel drawn to? What feels accessible or what resonates most? You make that change first, it then shifts you ever so slightly and the next change feels a little bit more approachable and and, and you sort of build on it in that way. But certainly when you start to keep your blood sugar stable, it feels easier to make different choices that support Mm -hmm. your mental health. And if you get a good night's sleep, everything feels easier. So all of these make it more possible to reach for the next Mm -hmm. self-loving, self-supportive choice.
1: And I think also then the obvious link is to hormones, because when I think of anxiety, I, I always link it to women. And and that probably is, is grossly unfair, and I'm sure men do too. But because, of, because we are cyclical and because of the, the way hormones affect us, I think it can show up very strongly in women through various phases in our life. Is that, would you say that's fair? Yes,
0: absolutely. And I think there's so much to be said about hormones. And one piece of this is two things are simultaneously true. One is that we have a culture that kind of talks to us about our late luteal phase, our PMS time. It's like, well, you're irrational, you're bitchy. You know, we shame the woman and we say like, well, you know, everything you're saying is now suddenly invalidated because we realize you're PMSing. Mm -hmm. And I think we get it wrong. I think that in many ways it's truth serum and it's more like the rest of the month, we tolerate a lot of bullshit. And then for those few days... All of those filters go away and we're like, no, 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 This is what's true and this is unjust and this is not okay. And I think it actually really helps us set an intention Mm -hmm. of where things need to change in our personal lives and the world at large. Um, But I think so there's there's a truth to where we go in our luteal phase and I would love for our culture to start embracing that. But there is also a false anxiety piece to it because in modern life, we are very hormonally out of balance. And there's two main contributors to that. One is that we are absolutely swimming in a stew of endocrine disruption. So our pesticides, our plastics, the phthalates, um, their air pollution, our personal care products, fragrances, cleaning products, all of this, many of it, it behaves like estrogens in our body. They're xenoestrogens. So when we put that lotion on, when we spare ourselves with perfume, when we clean with those cleaning products, when we eat something that was sitting against plastic and it was warmed up there, um, this is just giving us an excess of estrogen in our bodies. And then at the same time, we happen to also be living in a state of uh, not enough progesterone because two things that we need for progesterone, one is cholesterol in the diet, and that's been shunned and sometimes medicated away. And then the other is not living in a state of chronic stress because mm-hmm. our body, it's the same progenitor. It's called pregnenolone. And when we're chronically stressed, it's a phenomenon called pregnenolone steel where our body over and over again says, well, today we need the pregnenolone to make cortisol our stress hormone because we're dealing with extenuating circumstances yet again. And so we don't have enough pregnenolone left over to make progesterone. So we have this very exaggerated ratio of Elevated estrogen and decreased progesterone. And it makes for a bit much more pronounced and uncomfortable hormonal drop right mm. before our period. And so I think that there's truth to our luteal phase. And mm. I think that there's exaggerated mm. um, struggles in our luteal phase in modern life.
1: Yeah, I think you're, you're so right on, on both senses. It's quite hard to sit with both truths. But absolutely, if hopefully, if you're looking after your body, a little better than it, than it shouldn't come and smack you around the face so much, but there there is truth in it. And normally the bit that you, yeah, all those thoughts rocking around your mind at the end of a cycle are often to the extreme. But I I like to think yeah, there there is a a nugget of truth within them that is probably worth actioning. You know yeah, I'm feeling undervalued or I shouldn't have been committed to that or I've been drinking too much or I, I need some more vegetables in my life. Exactly. Unfortunately, fast forward a few days and you're like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm back to being yeah, right. <laughs> Forget all that, Um, which we do need to take note of that. But I think also that there's a point that, uh, you know, modern life isn't designed for these ebbs and flows. You know, I actually, as I was waiting to come on mic with you, I remember to put my cycle in my normal diary because I'm going to try and not book podcast recordings like just before I, I do my period. Uh, be- yeah, before my period because I can't... I, my brain can't be that that public facing and, and actually a few weeks later they come much easier but I need to remind myself to do that. It's like a secret
0: weapon. And I mean, we, we live in this world where the work world, the expectations are designed by and for men and, and they're sort of more 24-hour cycle. But we, I think it really can be a secret weapon to mm-hmm. schedule according to your cycle, where in your follicular phase, you feel more outward facing, more social, more optimistic, positive. Um, like That's when you want to be outgoing and, and be out in the world, spreading your message. But in the luteal phase, it's so much more internally mm-hmm. focused. And that's when you want to be resting more and journaling more and taking up some salt baths. And, um, and, and then it's those times when we schedule a big speaking event for our late luteal phase and you get there and you're like, no,
1: my body is screaming now.
0: So yeah, I I really support, I love that you are. Yeah, I'm trying to,
1: I'm trying to, but, and I think that then helps, doesn't it? Because this is where for me, the mind piece comes on because, say I did have a big public speaking thing at a point when my hormones are dropping, you then go, oh, you're rubbish, you're terrible at your job, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And, and so the the link between the two becomes blurry but actually yeah now we understand what's going on the reason I've got increased anxiety is because hormonally I'm I'm meant to be hiding away from the world a bit and we could maybe put out there that
0: showing up in our raw unpresentable tired luteal phase is also actually doing something good for the world (laughs) and we need those conversations too
1: Yes, totally. It's true. Sometimes I've, I've been a, a podcast guest at that point before and like given all of my like <laughs> most raw things and it makes for great content, doesn't it? But it, you, know, you have to understand in yourself what's going on. And I think there's a bit of crying. Um, but I think there's an important thing here amongst it all that I picked up in your book. But that fundamentally, we also have a bit of a fear of feeling stuff these days.
0: Yeah, these days always. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that we are raised in this really emotion phobic culture. And even if we're not fearing it, we're certainly not raised with emotional literacy, like having words to be able to define our feelings. Um, I, I went to an emotional intelligence uh, lecture this past weekend. I was at my college 20 year reunion, and it was mind blowing. And he talked about how you know most people can really only name a few emotions: like mm. you're sad, or you're angry, or you're happy. And it's like okay. And so he was teaching kids in middle school how to say, "Well, I'm neutral, content, but apprehensive." And <laughs> and it's actually so grounding mm. to name our feelings. Like we can work with that and so i mean i'm I'm here to say a big part of how we need to move through anxiety is to give ourselves permission to feel our feelings and and sometimes that requires permission. sometimes it requires putting the phone down and slowing down and and actually um, you know not being in a state of distraction every second of every day to to actually be bored with ourselves and brave with ourselves to feel what's there and mm-hmm. I think that we are due for a cultural rebranding of crying. I think we've got crying wrong. I remember I was at um, I was at a funeral and someone said to me, Be strong, don't cry. And <laughs> and I you know, it came from a beautiful place, right. but it's wrong. And fortunately I'm like a, you know, rebellious Aries psychiatrist. I was like, no, nah, I think I know what I need and it's to cry. But it's um and I think that uh crying, it's free therapy. Like this yeah. is not something that is a burden it's not a sign of weakness it's not something we need to apologize for we all do instinctively as soon as we mm-hmm. cry we try to suck it back in and make it small and we say i'm sorry i'm sorry but what i think we should be doing instead is really diving into it and letting it be bigger letting it be complete um we always feel better afterward i think it's the wisdom of our body giving us an opportunity for a much needed release
1: mm, i agree uh, yeah i actually posted about it recently actually in, in times of crisis, I've often felt like I've I've lost the ability to cry and, and then, you know, the better I am in my head, the more able I am to allow myself to do it. And sometimes it's and actually sometimes it's something and nothing, really. Just a little cry, I actually did it recently, locked my door, had a little cry and then felt fine. There was yeah. nothing terrible going on. I was I was overwhelmed, exhausted, had an adrenaline, massive adrenaline dump and and I found it completely leveled me out, whereas if I tried to hold that in for the rest of the day, it probably would have spoiled into something far worse. Or I tried to, that's what I think I'm wary of. That Sometimes I then attach, as you said earlier, I attach it to other bigger things, you know, mm. my, <laughs> go home, blood sugar crash, have a fight with my husband, my marriage is doomed, it's all over. And actually, yeah, you, if you, you meet things where they're at straight away, you, you can supple that.
0: And actually, you needed a, a snack and a good cry. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: and I think that,
0: you know, this is part of our miseducation is, mm-hmm. um, you, you have a nine year old and a four year
1: old. Is that right? No, nine, a seven and a four year old. Oh my yeah.
0: goodness. Yeah. Godless. So it's, um, the, they are not detached from their need to have a release like you know my daughter six years old uh, much to my chagrin sometimes she knows when she needs a release and she has a massive meltdown mm-hmm. and on on the one hand it's really unpleasant and convenient for the household and on the other i really celebrate um how directly connected she is to her body's knowing that it needs a release mm-hmm. and we as adult socialized human creatures we need these releases but we're so socialized out of them we don't shake it off when we go through a stressor we don't cry when we're pent up with so many unmetabolized emotions we just need to be slowing down tuning in our body is communicating this to us it's telling us like you know i have something here pent up it needs to be processed Mm -hmm. but we we steamroll over that we push past it and what we need to do instead is just say like whoa i need a good cry or Mm -hmm. one thing that i do that is so bizarre but so effective is I put on shamanic drum music and I shake for like two minutes and it's weird, but it's That's free. So it takes two minutes. It works.
1: And it's done. But I'm also thinking, you're speaking with our kids, like, we, we have this checklist, don't we? A cuddle, a snack, a sleep, a bath, right? All of those things, a cry. And actually if we applied those to ourselves, any one of those or that combination, it, it there's most things will be sorted with that, that selection of things, but we don't do it, you know, you have another coffee. we'll keep going, exactly. go into another, another meeting, go on social media. This and- is... Yeah. Like when
0: we have a baby, kind of know it's like, oh, is it they need a burp? They're hungry. <laughs> they need a diaper change. Like They're, they're overtired. And, and we come back to that checklist. I kind of tried to achieve that in the book. I made something called the false mood inventory or the false anxiety inventory, where it's like, I, I intend for people to just cut this out of the book, put it on the refrigerator. Because when you're in that moment, um, you don't have the presence of mind to think like, ah, I just need a snack or I'm getting my period tomorrow or I'm due for my dose of medication. We just don't have that presence of mind because um, we're in the fog. So to have a little reference list to cue us to be like, oh, I am hungover and I did eat something that doesn't agree with my stomach. That's why I feel a sense of the world barreling towards doom. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say the problems aren't real, but the reason we feel overwhelmed by them and we can't handle them is the false mood. And so, you know, just address like identifying the state of imbalance, addressing it makes us much more resilient and able to take on the very real challenges in
1: our lives. Mm, I think you're, you're spot on. As you're speaking, I'm thinking important messages. I think for me is that or for myself that I would like to share is when I was in the, the, the time when I my anxiety was most crippling. It's interesting I use that language. I, I I just felt like. The anxiety was taking over the majority of my life, and I could never imagine how it could just become something that I lived with. And I've, I know so many people who who just soldier on with with crippling anxiety. When I really would love them to know that there there are so many things that can help shift the balance. There might not be a magic instant fix, but bit by bit, you can change things for the better.
0: It's, it's such an important message. And, you know, I live this and witness this all day, every day. People come in to see me with crippling mental health issues. And time after time, I like we, we identify the source of imbalance, address it, and someone walks out able to lead a fulfilling life. And I'll, and I'll maybe just underscore one dimension of this, which is the whole complex issue around psychiatric medication. Mm-hmm. And that's a big nuanced topic. And sometimes we all kind of have that gut reaction when someone's talking about holistic strategies. It feels dogmatically anti pharma, which I'm not. I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe medication. But what I've witnessed is that there are people for whom meds are the keys to the kingdom. It helps them. They feel better. It's life changing, life saving, and that's great. And, you know, if those folks want to use any of my strategies to augment their medication, feel free. But they're kind of not the people that need me. They're okay. The current state of our field serves them. But then there are the millions of people for whom medications have not been an adequate solution for Mm -hmm. one reason or another. And, you know, maybe they tried every medication and nothing has worked or something worked but the effect faded or they experienced side effects or contraindications, whatever the case may be. And it's for those folks that I really want to direct the message of, you know, they're disenchanted, they're despairing. And I want them to know that there's reason for hope. Mm. that medication therapy those are two very good paths up this mountain of healing but they are not the only paths there are so many other ways we can creatively think about how to support your mental health and that's where you know what what i really hope my book achieves is for people that are despairing who feel hopeless who feel like there's nothing i've done has helped nothing's working what's wrong with me i just want those folks to know there's hope and here are the things that we can do and you Mm. too can feel better
1: yeah. I mean, I I want to do a cheer to say, yeah, don't, it's, it's, yeah. You know, when your mental health is in crisis, it, it's such a impossible place to be. And yeah, as we just said, you, you feel like there is no way out, but there really is. And it's not a dead end road or something you just have to carry on with. I hope that that helps someone who is feeling that because I've got so much empathy for them. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that might be a really great place to end, but I always like to ask two questions. Number one, um, where can people find you and do another actual shout out of your book because I think it is going to be vital for people. Um,
0: where you can find me? I'm most active on Instagram. and Ellen at MD. And same handle on places like Twitter and TikTok where I'm like embarrassingly not effective. So if you want a good laugh, head on over to TikTok and see a boomer trying to do those videos. But um, and then my book is called The Anatomy of Anxiety. And it's certainly my life's work distilled into about 250 pages. And I really hope it can help whoever needs a little encouragement and
1: some strategies to support their anxiety. Uh, I I mean I I can't push it any more than I pushed it but I really recommend it to everyone And and also I think it's useful for anyone who's got a partner or a friend or a sibling who struggles with anxiety because I think when you struggle with it and other people don't it can be quite hard to understand so maybe it's useful in that space too.
0: Yes there are certainly sections of the book that I almost intend for the people around the people with anxiety just to better validate and support and um, you show it more effectively and, and to also let people know you don't need special training or special skills to support someone who's struggling we it's just mm-hmm. showing up with our full humanity and conveying with our body language like the way you asked at the beginning how are like how are you actually feeling um we can ask somebody that and create the space for them to process and feel heard and understood and witnessed
1: because mm. that's the, the other layer that comes into it isn't it? you begin to feel it like- shamed and embarrassed and and because often at its worst it can be quite irrational or can make you feel quite irrational and then someone gives you loads of rational answers back which is best meaning but it's it's more complex than that yeah. and yeah to, to feel understood and heard and yeah I remember in the middle of it just having to have people repeat stuff back to me over and over again until it went into my head which is is it's a hard place to be but I'm very grateful to those people who did do that. Mm. Um, And my last question is, if you could have an honest conversation with one person, who would it be and what would you say? (laughs)
0: Oh, I mean, the temptation to, like, say, Beyonce or Oprah or Jesus. But I think if if I'm being honest, right now in my moment, in this moment, um, my mom passed away in 2015, and I I think I would just want to have a conversation with her. I would want to know. How's she doing how is she in at this at this stage of existence that i hope mm. she's still in
1: yeah oh so that was before your daughter was born
0: it was when i was pregnant
1: oh yeah that's so difficult yeah i know you've written a book well i mean yeah it'd be amazing to know what you made of all of that wouldn't it, it would be well that's yeah. a good a good final choice thank you so much for such a um valuable yeah valuable book and a valuable conversation i really appreciate your time thank you thank you for doing what you do ah well that was the uh podcast episode that i wish someone had recorded mm, when was like my worst in about the late t- about 2007 oh wow that's a long time ago now anyway that is the podcast i needed So I've needed so many times when my world has just got smaller and smaller and smaller because of anxiety. I probably would have quite liked to have been able to play it on some headphones as I was travelling up and down the northern line, which is when, yeah, when my panic was at its absolute worst. And that was because of a lot of lifestyle things. I was partying hard, I was becoming an adult and didn't know how to deal with it. And I was trying to find control amongst a time that wasn't very controllable. But if i'd have known that there were things that could have helped i would have grabbed them with with both hands and i hope for anyone listening that, that that message has come across loud and clear there is stuff that can be done the journey out of that deep spiral isn't quick but it but it is quicker than you might expect even small shifts take away that feeling of being gripped by panic um and thank you Dr. Ellen for taking time to do this recording for the second time after we got that slight technical error last time. It was a brilliant conversation. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to But Why. I'm forever grateful to have you here. Um, please join me next week for more honest chats. In the meantime, do get in touch with any guest suggestions or any feedback, especially if in particular around the subject of anxiety. The email is butwhy at and I am now off to, well, I'm actually, you'll probably be able to see in my background, look like I'm in the dungeon, but I'm actually in the south of France, visiting family. So I'm off to go and do some more French stuff. this the afternoon, so we can't be that far off another portion of cheese, as is the way in France. Wishing you a lovely day and catch you next time. Goodbye.